Good morning. Um, my name's Graham, and I'm 33. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So. <laughs> yeah, I do want to give a special, a special shout out to a, a guest of honor. Uh, Annalise is here this morning. So um, yeah, Bobby's here too. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, actually, my my fan section's all down there. That's great. They're all in one spot, so I expect that's where a lot of the the cheers and the heckling are going to come from. So, um, so the Christmas story is one that everybody in the room is probably at least somewhat familiar with. Um, in short, a man named Joseph and his pregnant wife Mary are traveling to Bethlehem, and when they arrive, there's no room for them to stay in the in in that town so the only place they can rest for the night is in a stable and that night mary gives birth to a baby boy and with no other options available to her puts him to sleep in a manger that the animals would have eaten out of and i was just i was kind of reflecting on that because the story for me and probably for a lot of us has become very familiar and maybe we um, I guess, lose sight of the surprise of what that is like. And about this time last year, I made a few trips to the IWK because Annalise had just been born and she was in, in intensive care for several weeks. And I remember being there and it was always very, very, very sterile. There were Purell pumps and disinfectant wipes everywhere. And that's the way that it should be. Um, so I just kind of imagined, what if I had gotten that first text message that afternoon your sister's going to have the baby, and don't worry, she's in a burn. And I'd be like, is this like a like a wedding burn or like a, a burn burn? Um, um, I wonder if maybe just in the familiarity, we've kind of lost the surprise of, oh my goodness, she had to have the baby in a drafty, dirty, a dirty place like that. Um, yeah, just... Are there things in the story that we've kind of become so so familiar with? They're no longer surprising to us. We no longer wonder at them. So the thing that I want to really explore today is what makes the birth of Jesus distinct? What makes it different from any other birth that ever, any other childbirth that ever happened? And there was a um, there was an early draft of the invitation that a lot of you would have gotten that said. Um, Let's explore the authenticity of Christ's birth. Very few people question whether his birth is authentic. Nobody questions if that happened. Most people, um, whether you're an atheist, whatever religion you belong to, believe that Jesus was at very least a real person. So authenticity isn't the real question, but distinct. What made it very different? What made it special? So that's what we're going to look at today. So the Christmas story is found in two books of the Bible, in Matthew and in Luke. But I'm going to begin in the book of John, um, and I'm just going to read his opening statement, which at first glance might be kind of, um, which might read kind of in a perplexing way. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John chose the word word to refer to God 
because it was of significance to his two audiences that would have been reading this, the Jews and the Greeks. His Jewish readers would understand the word of God is powerful. God speaks and things come into being. God speaks to his people. And then the Greeks, on the other hand, would understand that word, word, not in a religious sense, but in a philosophical one. They would understand word is a principle that gives order to the universe. And in this opening paragraph of John's gospel, we find the great claim that the word was God. The word was creator of all things, and he became flesh. He actually became a human being and lived on this earth. And I don't believe that we need to have blind faith. I believe that we can have confidence that what we believe is actually true. I believe we can take steps to verify that what we believe is true and that our beliefs can withstand questioning. So as we go through the story, we're going to have a look at what it says. We'll talk about the claims, and we'll see what conclusions that we can come to. So the first claim we're going to look at is the virgin birth. So unlike everybody else, Jesus has no human father. And 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah is recorded as saying this in chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. And that name means God with us. And this would be a very powerful and a very convincing sign, because that's not the natural process of things. That's not how conception happens. It would take a true miracle for something like this to actually take place. So Isaiah claims that at some point in the future, God would override a natural process and conceive a child without a human father's involvement. God himself would be the father. And this is the distinct aspect of Jesus' birth. Having one natural human parent and one supernatural parent means it's not just distinct, but it's also divine. That this child would be both God and man. And in the Gospels, we find a story of somebody making this exact claim. In Matthew chapter 1, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And Luke elaborates on this in greater detail. Uh, Starting in verse 26, An angel named Gabriel is sent to a young woman named Mary. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. So how do we react to a claim like this? How would we react if somebody claimed this today? We would be right to seriously doubt what they were telling us. And the people of Jesus' time also doubted it. So I think the first thing we need to do is we just need to consider the reliability of what what we read in the Gospels, in Luke's Gospel in particular. Uh, Joanna talked about this to some extent last week, so I don't want to spend too much time reiterating that. But it's just worth highlighting that what we read in the Gospels are records of eyewitness accounts, people who were actually alive during the time of Jesus and were present 
um, for some of the things that he said and did. From a literary point of view, there are more copies of the New Testament dated as having been produced closer to the time of the actual events than um, any other uh, work from the ancient world. So we can be more confident that the copies we have today are consistent with the originals more than we can with the writings of Plato or Julius Caesar. And Luke is considered by many to be an accurate and very thorough historian. He's also a physician. He is a doctor. And he documents Jesus' conception as a stated fact. He doesn't add a disclaimer. He just lists it along with many other miracles throughout the life of Jesus, like when he healed people, the way he calmed a storm when he was at sea, and he raised a young man from the dead. Um, the way Jesus was conceived is just one more in a string of miracles in Luke's account of Jesus' life. But it's still an extraordinary claim, and it would be virtually impossible to prove it directly. But there are some clues that provide some support that this actually happened. Uh, back in those days, children were referred to by their father's name. And throughout the Bible, we find the names of James, son of Zebedee, James, son of Alphaeus, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, that one's a mouthful, John, son of Zacharias. And we see Jesus referred to in the very same way. In Luke's genealogy, it says uh, when he began his ministry, um, he was about 30 years of age. And as was supposed, or some versions say, so it was thought, being the son of Joseph. In John, Philip calls him son of uh, the son of Joseph. In 642, in Capernaum, the Jews call him the son of Joseph. But in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, the town where he grew up. He would be about 30 years old at this point. And it says, uh, we see the people replying to Jesus, or speaking of him, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And they took offense at him. To refer to somebody by their mother's name was an insult, and it was reserved for children whose paternity was in question. So it was well known in Jesus' hometown that Joseph was not his father, and even decades later, they never let him forget it. So now we'll look at Mary's side of the story. Why would Mary go with the least likely explanation? Who would believe a story about a miraculous conception? Whatever the circumstances actually were, she could have offered a much more plausible explanation or shifted the blame, at least partially, onto somebody else. Maybe somebody took advantage of her, or maybe Joseph pressured her into sleeping with him. But she went with the one explanation that literally no one, including her future husband, would have believed. And while it's safe to say that Mary was the only one who knew for sure what the truth was, Joseph could be extremely confident in his assessment of the situation. His future wife was an adulterer and was pregnant with somebody else's child. Now, in those days, the marriage custom was different than it is today. A man's family would choose a wife for him, and then they would be formally pledged to be married, which is the stage that these two were in. It's different from the engagement stage we have today, where it can still be called off at any point and for any reason. They weren't yet married, but they were legally bound to do so. At this point, the arrangement can only be canceled by a formal divorce procedure. And adultery was grounds for divorce, and Joseph decided to proceed with it. And it says he decided to put her away quietly. He wasn't going to make a spectacle about it or attempt to embarrass her. But the minimum that was required was to give her a bill of divorce in the presence of two witnesses, and he made up his mind to go ahead with it. But then something changed his mind. 
and I will admit um, that I made up my own mind years ago that the story is true as it's presented in the Bible. And I think it's very easy to arrive at a conclusion or settle on a conclusion without really asking yourself, why do I believe that this is the case? Um, I guess after hearing the story for as many years as I have, I kind of accept it as fact. But if you'd question, well, why do you believe it? I'd have trouble giving you an answer. So in just reading over all of this, all the reading and studying that I did, nothing stood out to me more um, as more convincing that this claim is true than Joseph's change of heart. He had every reason to doubt Mary's story, and we would too. And he was clearly convinced that she was lying. Um, to go ahead with that marriage would be a shame to both of them and to their child. He's going to be seen as an idiot for believing her story. So what could possibly have changed his mind? And in Matthew one twenty, we read what it was. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When Jesus woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And here's another one of those details that I think maybe becomes familiar. It's easy to think nothing of it when we read it in the story. Personally, I have never seen an angel. I have never had such an encounter. I don't know what an encounter with an angel is like. So how overpowering must it be to walk away from that thinking? It must have been true after all. So we can conclude from all of this that Mary was a cheater and a liar, that Joseph was a fool, or maybe he was this prince charming, head over heels, in love kind of guy, or that their claims are actually true, that this really was the fulfillment of a century old or centuries old prophecy that predicted the birth of a child who would be God with us. But the virgin birth is just one of the Old Testament prophecies that predict something about Jesus. There are many others that point to Jesus as this promised son of God. So what is biblical prophecy? This is what the Bible says in Isaiah 46. It says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. In Numbers 23, it says, God is not human that he should lie and not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? And in Isaiah 48, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image commanded them. God has purposes and he works to bring about those purposes. There's no guesswork involved in what God does. God never looks at something and says, called it when something happens. God shows his power through his mighty acts, and he uses prophecy to show his faithfulness. It says it should be on the screen behind me. Does he promise and not fulfill? He uses it to show his eternity. I make known the end from the beginning. His power, I will do all that I please. And he uses it to make sure that we do not attribute what he does to chance, to coincidence, or to anyone or anything else, lest you say my carved image commanded them. So throughout the Old Testament, which was written hundreds or some of it thousands of years before Jesus lived, there are over 300 prophecies of a Messiah 
who would come. Not just that he would come, but how it would come about, how it was going to happen. And in Jesus, all of them are fulfilled. So let's look at the one that says Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's from Micah 5, chapter 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, and that's just to distinguish it from another town called Bethlehem, which was farther south. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. There was no reason to think Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It was in the middle of nowhere. His family didn't live there, and they would have no reason to travel there. But God said he would be born in Bethlehem, and nothing interferes with those plans. Mary and Joseph had no reason to go there, and it would have been foolish, maybe even dangerous, to make a journey that long with her that late in her pregnancy. But the law said everyone had to return to their ancestral hometown to take part in a census. Now, we can dismiss that as coincidence, but remember that the purpose of biblical prophecy is for God to show his power and to assure us that he is faithful and to ensure that his works cannot be attributed to chance or coincidence. And there are many, many more, which I'm just going to go over quickly in the interest of time. There are prophecies that talk about his arrival in Jerusalem, that he would ride in on a donkey. And it's like, okay, that's kind of an easy one. I, I could do that. There are events that surround his arrest just a few days later. Ones that say that he will be betrayed by a friend, sold for silver, and not just silver, but for 30 pieces of it. That he would remain silent before his accusers. And that he would be spit on. Prophecies about the events surrounding his death. That he would be crucified with thieves. That they would gamble for his clothing and that his hands and feet would be pierced, and the events surrounding his burial, that his side would be pierced, that none of his bones would be broken, uh, which did happen to the other two thieves that he was crucified with, and that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, one, objective, or one objection to all of this is that uh, it's possible that these prophecies were written after Jesus lived, so could they have been written after the fact just to make it look like Jesus fulfilled them? Historians generally agree that the Old Testament was completed in 450 BC. But further than that, the first Greek translation of the Hebrew texts was started in 250 BC, and you need the original before you can produce the translation. So that's at least a 250-year gap between the completion of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. Or some claim that Jesus deliberately fulfilled these throughout his life as a deception just to appear to be the Messiah. But he had no control over the circumstances or location of his birth, and he had no control over the events during or after his death. I read uh, one, one author who remarked uh, that Jesus never cried out from the womb on the way to Bethlehem, Mom, we won't make it. <laughs> and it's, it is much easier to fulfill you know, the one about riding into Jerusalem on a donkey than the ones about his executioners gambling for his clothing or piercing his side with a spear after he's already dead. And Jesus himself claims that the Old Testament prophecies refer to him. In Luke 24, he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And that brings me to my third point, that Jesus himself claimed to be God. And there are several times where Jesus is quoted as claiming to be divine, claiming to be God. 
In Matthew 16, he asked his disciple, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And in Mark 14, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, I am. And in John 8, uh, this could be the most striking of all of his claims. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is not a grammatical error. This is a direct reference to Exodus 3.14, where God identifies himself to Moses as I am. I am is a form of the verb to be or to exist. The three-letter name I am contains all kinds of meaning about the nature and the character of God. I am tells us that he is self-existent. Nothing created him, and he requires nothing in order to exist. It tells us that he is the creator and the sustainer of all things that exist. And I am means that he is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, and he'll be the same tomorrow. When Jesus referred to himself as I am, his wording was deliberate, and his audience knew exactly what he was saying, that he was no ordinary man, that he was God. So now it's up to us to decide what to do with these claims. C.S. Lewis said, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. And Josh McDowell takes this idea down just to three possible choices. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he really is the Lord. And he offers us this guide to help us decide which of the three is actually correct. First, either his claim that he is God is true, or it's false. There's no other option here. And if it's false, there are again only two possibilities, that he knew it was false, or he didn't. So let's start with the claims that were false. Was he a liar? If he was, what could his motivation possibly have been? He lived and died broke, so it couldn't have been for the money. He was rejected for his teachings, even by his own family. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And it all means that he was a hypocrite, teaching the importance of honesty and living a good life while living out a gigantic lie himself. And he held on to those claims even when he was threatened with death, and death by crucifixion at that. Wouldn't that be enough to make him confess? If it was me and you're coming at me with one of those big whips and a handful of spikes, I would probably tell you anything you wanted to know. The brutal reality of the cross would not have been lost on Jesus. They didn't invent it for him. He would have seen people crucified throughout his entire life. And I once heard it said that Jesus lived his entire life in the shadow of the cross. It was very common in that part of the world at that time. People will suffer or give their lives for something that isn't true, but not for something that they know is a lie. If he was knowingly misleading people, he could have saved his life by simply admitting to his deception. So let's look at possibility number two, the lunatic option. It's possible to be sincere in your beliefs and still be sincerely wrong. 
people suffering from delusions are detached from reality, um, believing things uh, like everyone is out to get them. Someone claiming to be God, or the Queen of England, or a famous rock star, or a poached egg would have some level of detachment from reality. But the man we see depicted in the Bible seems to be of a very sound mind. His teachings and his wisdom are profound. He's articulate, he's compassionate, and everything about him suggests a clean slate of mental health. But this might be where I personally have to disagree to some extent with those who promote this line of reasoning, or at least concede that the argument isn't airtight. The doors just left open a crack that Jesus um, was of a sound mind other than this one delusion. Medically, delusions are often a symptom of another illness, um, like schizophrenia or dementia. And the Harvard Medical School describes it like this. People with delusional disorder usually do not have hallucinations or a major problem with mood. Unlike people with schizophrenia, they tend not to have major problems with day-to-day -day functioning. Other than behaviors related to delusional content, they do not appear odd. So is it possible that Jesus was a wise man, a good teacher, a good role model, who happened to struggle with a stubborn uh, delusion that he was supernatural? Delusional disorder is rare, but if we're honest and we want to be fair and uh, we don't want to ignore possibilities that might weaken our case, I don't think we should rule it out completely. So let's go back to where we started in the book of John. He bookends his biography, um, his account of the life of Jesus with these, these two claims. He opens with, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And at the end, in chapter 20, he says, these things are written. I've written these things in my book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he spent years following him, hearing his teachings, and watching him do the things he did. And he was persecuted for his beliefs. John and the other gospel writers had no doubts about who Jesus really was. And they wrote their respective books so that people could believe as they did, not on blind faith, but with confidence and with assurance. So when we look at the claims the Bible makes, it is possible that the virgin birth is nothing more than a gigantic lie perpetrated by a young woman too ashamed of what she did, and a young man foolish enough to go along with it. Is it possible that Jesus coincidentally fulfilled dozens or hundreds of ancient prophecies in his life? Is it possible that Jesus one of, he was one of history's great con men? Is it possible that he was out of his mind? Sure. But we need to ask, is it possible that he really was who he claimed to be? Is it possible that 2,000 years ago, Something extraordinary and miraculous happened, that an eternal and all-powerful God stepped down from his heavenly kingdom into a world like ours, with all of the problems that go on here every day, and his first destination was a manger in a stable. No royal welcome, no red carpet, no crib, no medical care. He became completely helpless and vulnerable, just like we are, the very first step in a plan thousands of years in the making to save mankind. Now I want to change gears just a little bit. I'm going to show you some hidden camera footage from L'Enfant Plaza, a metro station in Washington, DC. This was recorded on January 12th, 2007. So I'm just going to show you a few seconds of what happened that morning. Can you play that video?
probably wondering what that was all about. The video was sped up. You were watching a time lapse. But the music actually was that fast. And maybe you can guess that the thing you were looking for was, in fact, the man playing the violin. This was an experiment set up by the Washington Post to see how people would respond to a great classical musician performing in a place usually reserved for buskers and beggars, where people were in a rush to get to work, and where many people had, as the article describes, cups of coffee in their hands and cell phones at their ears. Um, that's how you know this was 2007. There was, there was none of this. Um, the iPhone had only been announced three days earlier. <laughs> The violinist you heard was Joshua Bell. Earlier that week, he had played a sold-out concert in the Boston Symphony Hall, which seats approximately 2,500 people, and what they describe as the pretty good seats went for about $160 when you convert it to Canadian. Later that year, he was awarded the Avery Fisher Prize, recognizing him as the greatest classical musician in America. The first piece he played was called Chacon for Solo Violin in D Minor by Johann Sebastian Bach. It's 14 minutes in length, which is called exhaustingly long, and is considered one of the most difficult violin pieces to master. And the instrument he played on was handmade in 1713 by Antonio Stradivari, a master craftsman of stringed instruments. According to Bell, the construction of that violin is so precise that if you shaved a millimeter of wood off at any point, it would totally imbalance the sound. And the morning he did this undercover performance, he made a journey of three blocks from his hotel to the station by taxi to protect his instrument because experts believe it cost him $3.5 million to purchase. And what happened? The uh, journalist who put this all together asked the director of the National Symphony Orchestra what he thought the outcome of the experiment would be. And his guess was that if he was just taken for granted as a street musician, 75 or 100 people would stop and he would make about $150. But by the time the actual experiment had ended, 43 minutes in length, out of the 1,097 people who walked by, seven of them stopped for at least 60 seconds. 27 gave money, totaling $32.17. And 1,070 people just kept going, unaware or uninterested in what was happening right in front of them. The journalist then tracked down some of the people who passed through the station that morning and asked what they thought or why they didn't stop. And this were some of their answers. I had a time crunch. I had an 8.30 training class. I didn't think nothing of it, just a guy trying to make a couple of bucks. One said, when street musicians play, I can't hear my customers, and that's bad for business. He was pretty good. It was the first time I didn't call the police. <laughs> and one guy asked, where was he in relation to me? And when he was told about four feet away, he just said, oh, he had had his headphones in. Over a thousand people passed by and didn't realize that something very rare, very special was happening right beside them. So now let's think about the stable where Jesus was born. Suppose that night in Bethlehem, somebody was walking by and caught a glimpse of what was going on inside. What might they say? I was in a rush. I had places to be. I thought it was just a couple homeless people looking for shelter. Or I didn't stop because I didn't see anything. In the Washington experiment, every sort of person, men, women, 
black people, white people, everyone just passed by, with one exception. It was children. Every child who came through wanted to stop and listen, and every one of them was hurried along by the adult who was with them. Jesus said that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must become like little children. They have a way of seeing the world that we tend to lose when we grow up. They see the world with wonder. Wonder is a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration, caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. Has the story become so familiar that it's unremarkable? That the God who created the universe by speaking it into existence saw us, the people he made, sinful people who had gone our own way, separated from him with no way to get to him. And rather than leave us to figure it out on our own, he made the solution for us in the most unexpected way possible. What would come to mind um, if I said an all-powerful being came to Earth? We know how that would be depicted in, in the movies, um, but we wouldn't expect a little baby that can't talk and cries a lot and can't do anything for himself. But God said that he would become a human like us and experience life exactly the way we do. All the struggles, all the joys, all the difficulties. But in all the busyness and commotion, we can't miss the true wonder of it all. The miracle of a baby who was more than just a baby, but a God, the one true God, eternal and all-powerful, who came to live among us. And I'll just, I'll end with this. As the Christmas story proceeds, we don't read that the whole, ta- the whole town came out to see them. Nobody came out to see the newborn king. Nobody came to comfort them or provide for them, with the exception of two small groups of people, shepherds and wise men. When angels suddenly appeared to the shepherds and said, uh, the Christ, the promised Messiah, had been born in Bethlehem, their first words were, let's go. They refused to miss their chance to see this child. And the wise men weren't called by angels, but they were called by a star. The king told them to go and search diligently for the child, and they did search diligently, making a journey thought to be 800 miles to find this child. No effort was too great to keep them away. And today, especially in this Christmas season, we have the same call to come to him. He wants to know you. He wants to know all of us. He came to this earth for you. He came to this earth for all of us. And just as I transition this back over to to Bruce and we move on to the next part of the service, let me just say, if you don't know him and you want to, there will be an opportunity to come to the front. Someone can talk to you and pray with you. This is Jesus' invitation to you this Christmas to come to him and to know him.